This project is built on a hypothesis. There are moments in history when the status quo fails. Political systems prove insufficient, religious ideas unsatisfactory, social structures intolerable. These are moments of crisis. During some of these moments, great minds have entered into conversation and torn apart inherited ideas. Dethroning truths, combining old thoughts, and creating new ideas, they've shaped the norms of future generations. Every era has its issues, but do ours warrant the conversation? If they do, is it happening? We'll be exploring these sorts of questions through conversations with a cross-section of American thinkers, people who are critiquing some aspect of normality and offering an alternative vision of the future, people who might be having the conversation. Like a real conversation, this project is going to be subjective. It will frequently change directions, connect unexpected ideas, and wander between the tangible and the abstract. It will leave us with far more questions than answers because, after all, nobody has a monopoly on dreaming about the future. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Mike Assal. And you're listening to The Conversation. Ahoy! How goes it? Not bad. Yourself? I'm glad we survived editing that last episode. I'm still recovering. (laughs) Well, let's go from the heavily philosophical into the tangible. Sounds good. So today, talking with Lisa Petrides. Yes. Hopping on the motorcycle, riding down the coast, over Devil's Slide, to Half Moon Bay. I never heard of it. Yeah, it's it's a funny little town. I know strange people from there. God, it really just, it sounds like it produces the weirdest people in the world. Folks like you, maybe. Oh, right. (laughs) So, Lisa, do you want to do a little intro on her? Sure. So, uh, Lisa is the founder of ISKME, which is... The Institute for the Study of Knowledge Management in Education. Exactly. She's really interested in looking at education, looking at how people learn, looking at how things are taught, and trying to figure out how things should be taught. Yeah, which I think is really intriguing. She takes a perspective that, well, makes me think a lot of social science mm-hmm. in, its, in its heyday of really focusing on a lot of rigorous research and trying to go from statistics about how things are operating now and make the jump to a better system. Right. Which is funny because that's something that has come up in a lot of other conversations in how you make that jump. Yeah. It's, it's David Hume's fallacy going from is to ought. But that's where policy comes from. Exactly. And I think it's going to be really cool to see how she assesses the state of education now, which is something that surprisingly has only come up in our conversation with Andrew Keene thus far. And right. he just sort of swept it aside. So Andrew Keene... I know we'll dispute me on this fact, but I think education is absolutely one of the most important topics to be having the conversation about. Especially in a world where we've talked a lot about information and an abundance of information. Mm -hmm. And how do you sift through that? Where do you get the tools to sift through that? Education. Right. You know, there are a lot of sources we talk so much about value in this project or morality or the good. It matters in the same way that like, Religion matters, or family matters, or vague cultural norms matter. It is one of those sites exactly. of creating what we value. At the same time, I think there's a, an interesting discussion of, should education be one of those sites at all? What purposes should education actually serve? 
And I'll be curious to talk to her about that. Like, what can we learn about it through statistics? What goals should we be pursuing? How do we decide on those? Should education be something that is just helping people get jobs? Here's the question of the liberal arts, and are they still right. relevant Absolutely. In, in today's society? And that's a question of the good. And whether, even if they're not relevant in today's society, or not valued in today's society, should they be? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm intrigued to see where this one goes. So uh, I founded ISKME, the Institute for the Study of Knowledge Management and Education, 10 years ago. And I did that because I was looking for an opportunity. I was, I was at the time a professor at Columbia University Teachers College. I was teaching in the Department of Organization and Leadership. And I was really looking for a way to take the ideas and the concepts we were thinking about around education and information sharing, uh, how we created knowledge. I was looking for a way to really put this work in practice. And I felt like that wasn't happening. I didn't have the same kinds of opportunities to do uh, in the academic environment. Before that, just sort of briefly, you know, my background was in information science and in, in, in education. So I was bringing a lot of these ideas about thinking about how information helps us do what we do and about information and data as a means of continuous improvement. So these of uh, kind of combining this kind of information science and education is something that's sort of unique in education, at least certainly was 20 years ago when I was, you know, getting educated myself. So you founded ISKME based on wanting to study different types of education. What did you want to study? Well, what I wanted to study was how people created or made access to data for people to be able to use for decision-making, how that data really got sort of transformed into information that was usable, that could be applied to problems. But the real important piece to study also for us was the component around action. So how you take that and turn that into real action and then and then how that cycle begins again. So that was kind of the in fact our you know our tagline is turning knowledge into action, right? So that's a big important component of the picture. You're thinking about aggregating knowledge on sort of an educational system and what you can learn from that and all these different ways I assume different bits of data you can bring together to think about what the system is doing. Mm -hmm. And then there's a jump there where you go from looking at and measuring what the system is doing to improving the system? Absolutely. I mean, it it really is about continuous improvement. And and the work is really about change. It's about how you create change and innovation in education. I would say in some ways that's a subtext, but I think most people working in education, that is the subtext, Um, that things aren't working as they are currently structured and configured, and how do you do it differently, right? So in this whole area of education reform, that's kind of why people go into education, I think, right? They're trying to understand how to do something better. The context could be how in a classroom you use real-time data on your students to understand what they need, or whether it's at a big district level, you're understanding how a certain program is impacting that region of the country, to much larger systems, you know, looking at countries or, you know, other kinds of systems that go across those sort of boundaries. So the unit of analysis really can go from the classroom to the world. Okay, so it's more a way of thought. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So that, of course, seems to imply that the education system today isn't perfect. You could say that. (laughs) (laughs) So with everyone I talk to, of course, I I was mentioning earlier, but I'm sort of interested in 
the present and where we go from here. So let's mm -hmm. look at the present for a moment mm -hmm. and talk about today's education system. Education has not popped up much in the maybe 10 conversations I've recorded thus That's far, except in one with a media critic named Andrew Keene. And he mentioned it more or less in passing, saying that um, he felt we had all of these sort of social issues. And generally, when people didn't know what to do, they said, well, the problem's education. Leave it to the teachers. Mm -hmm. And he felt that that was just a way for people to get out of the conversation. And he felt that the teachers were people who were part of this sort of 19th century model of education. He thinks of us moving into this world of brands where everyone must be a brand and must survive in this sort of level digital economy. And these, these are people who are sort of like career-wise, right. can't survive themselves and shouldn't be teaching our children. That's been the only mention just for your background that's, that's popped really up in this project. That's really interesting and sort of not surprising. Well, you know, to kind of respond to what Andrew said, I mean, in some ways, you know, I can't read a newspaper or, or hear the news or look on the web and not see some of the problems, not see almost any problem and look at it and say, education, 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 right? I can look and, and, and if you really trace it back in that way. Now, do we mean education as a school? Do we mean education more generally? Do we mean more education as a society and how we learn our culture and norms, right? So education can, can be a lot of different things. So in one sense, I would agree that, you know, when you kind of keep going back, you keep going to education. I think, you know, to bring us today where we are in education, I think part of the problem is that the non-education world, right, thinks, well, ed, you know, shouldn't teachers solve this problem? They're with the kids all day long. Shouldn't they do that? But there's a real disconnect between what's happening on the outside and then what actually the, the teacher gets handed in, in terms of a classroom. And I can say this in terms of whether we're talking about primary school or secondary school or college education, it's, it's, it's the same thing. You don't necessarily have a choice as a teacher who comes your way. So the complex social issues around, especially around children in education, it's become such a political issue, you know, political like from the policy perspective. So people's political careers are dependent. Governments run education, you know, state governments run education, and then they're reelected and other things taking place. So here's this thing that's sort of the fabric of a society, but it's sort of been at the whims of politics and policy. And then, of course, is the issues of, you know, friends who I have who teach in schools where they tell me that, 75% of their kids have come in with fetal alcohol syndrome when they were born or they were born addicted to crack cocaine. That wasn't what teachers did 100 years ago, right? So we're using like an old model of, of how the teacher works and what needs to fix in, in this whole other society that's not really equipped in that way. Mm -hmm. So that's just kind of one starting point to say like what's going on with education today. So it's very complex, you know, at that level. But let me sort of jump up a whole nother level and say that I think we're really at a moment in time where there really has been sort of, you know, this perfect storm of, of, of variables in the world, which certainly have to do with technology and the internet. They also have to do with this whole idea of sort of personalization. Again, these are sort of the opportunities that are like right here in front of us, but our education systems aren't anywhere close to being able to even think about how to address that. I mean, most education looks like what it looked like 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. There is something then to what Andrew was saying about them having this cultural legacy that goes back a long way. The yeah. structures are sort of in place to how they operate. Right. But it also seems like we have these new structures of technology coming in that are making new things mm -hmm. optional. I'm sort of curious, 
Well, first, what happens if the system doesn't change, if it doesn't embrace any of these new things, if, say, we continue on with the educational status quo? Some of what I'm sure draws you into this field is the notion that, like, if things are left alone, then we end up with a worse system, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And what is what does that world look like that we're trying to avoid? Right. Why change the status quo? Right. Well, unfortunately, I feel like the worst system is kind of here already in a lot of ways. And it's there in the schools that are really poorly served. It's there in dropout rates in some communities in this country that are 50% uh, of high school students drop out. The national average is less than that, but in certain communities it is that high. Of course, if you look around demographics, you know, you'll find you know, huge differences there as well. We see the failure of it, the colossal failure of it. You know, I just was reading something recently about prisons, and, and I, I might not have the number exactly right, but it was something like 80% of the inmates here at San Quentin, which is a male prison, are illiterate. So that means they read at the fourth grade level or below. And I've heard another number, which is something like a high percentage of those would be considered gifted with a learning disorder if they were in traditional schools. So you start thinking, and you, what bigger failure, <laughs> you know? Can we actually fail any more than that, right? In some ways, I think we've hit, we've hit bottom. I don't, I, you know, what, what could be worse? I, what could be worse than that? That we have a society that is, by and large, mathematically illiterate in a lot in our society, also not literate from a reading and writing perspective or a critical thinking perspective. Again, you can look at where you want to apply those. So, right. you know, in some ways you say, what, what's the doomsday situation? It's like, uh, maybe we're like in it. How does that manifest in terms of a society that's democratic, mm -hmm. where you need no, an educated huge. electorate? Huge. And many people have spoken more eloquently than I about this, that, you know, you cannot have a democracy without the education of its people, right? It's so maybe there's a question of what is education doing? Is it preparing people for a place in an economy? Is it fulfilling them as individuals? Is it socializing them to work in a certain type of culture? Right, and of course those are sort of the age-old debates within education. There are those who argue that you don't need college if all you have is a vocation and vice versa, right? There's a lot and a lot of debates and disagreement. But I think today what we can sort of safely say is we need to be able to prepare individuals to sort of live in the 21st century. And what does that mean? Well, it means they need to learn how to read and to think critically. They need to know some conflict resolution. They need to understand mathematical concepts or analysis. They need a whole set of skills, no matter what they're going to do in the world. So sort of 21st century living, of course, we're still working and we need jobs. We need to bring in income. So your education needs to, to take you to a point where you can do that viably. But it also needs to give you the skills that you need to live in the greater society. So I would say, you know, that's the, the real mission and purpose of education. Uh, I think sometimes we see this very directive, like everybody must go to college and must get this kind of job. And, and obviously that's nonsensical. I mean, we know certain trends, like jobs today are requiring more technology skills than most of our high school graduates have. Okay, problem. Let's solve that problem, right? But other than that, there's, you know, really it's all of those things. So those seem like those are, 
you know, where, where every conversation eventually moves into, or as I said earlier, maybe degenerates into the philosophical conversation about the good. It seems like those are some of the ideas of the good. To some extent, mm-hmm, it is trying mm-hmm. to help you survive. That's right. In a way. Right. Yes. Survive and, you know, and I might say thrive also. Mm-hmm. Right. What does that mean? What, right? what I mean, does we, that mean? we can't, well, we can't, you know, thrive if there's a nuclear accident 5,000 miles away where there's going to be fallout contaminating our water. That's not thriving. Okay. And what does that mean? Well, I'm educated. I'm all set. No, it means that somehow I have to know how to work with others, how we might troubleshoot that, how we might problem solve. What do we do locally? What do we do by state? What do we do for our water? I mean, obviously I'm talking about Japan and Fukushima, right, as an example or an analogy. But those are the kinds of problems we're going to have. We're so interrelated. We we travel. There's pollution in our oceans. There's climate change. I mean, there's there's really big problems facing us. So the idea that we can just sort of know our job, do our thing, and you know, and and act in that way is, I think, going to become, you know, untenable. This is making me think of the second conversation I had with a guy named Dr. Max Moore. And I always like to ask people at the end sort of a question that they would leave off with. Mm -hmm. The question that he would want to ask later people in the conversation was, how do you develop a process for making better choices? Mm. As we were just having that conversation about what education should do, I suddenly remembered that, that question of his. In a way, our conversation about education has me thinking about its role socially mm-hmm. and how do we make better choices. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I like sort of the simplicity of that because in a lot of ways, that is what we're trying to do. It is both the the discernment, really, you know, it's, it's complex thinking. It's, you know, it, there's there's a lot of variables in being able just to kind of answer that question. But I think that is a lot around what critical thinking is and being able to reason and having an analytical thought. I mean, those are some huge pieces, I think, that, you know, many teachers are committed to, to try to teach their students, whether the students are 12 or 20. Yeah, I would say that definitely would fall under the how do we make better choices. And I think there is another element that many of us would agree, and certainly not everybody, that you know education really does have a civic component to it. And that it is about, it's not just your choice, like, you know, I don't want this trash, so I'm going to burn it in my backyard. That's a good choice for me, but what does it do for my neighbor? Does it put toxins in the air? Does it, right? And it, it isn't sort of this thing like, well, it's about me, it's not about you. It's about understanding how the choices you make impact others, or that you're part of a bigger whole, that you you can't make your choices in in full isolation from the rest of the world. Why does one person bike to work and why does somebody carpool, right? They're making a choice that shows that they understand that they're part of a larger ecosystem, right? Obviously, there's human rights that have to do with water and air and safety and shelter. But I think education is right there with it because it really is a public good. I, I have such a hard time with people who say, for example, who don't have children and say, well, why should I pay those taxes? I don't have anybody in the schools. It's not benefiting me. And I think, how can you possibly say that? Those are the people that are servicing you, whether they're servicing your roads or your supermarket or your medical offices. I mean... Or they're not mugging you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I mean, how can this not be a public good? You know, it impacts all of us. Right. That really seems like kind of the 
one of the very lowest level ideas of good in there. Where does that idea come from? Well, Is that pure kind of utilitarian survival? I was going to say it, it could be fairly Darwinian. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I studied ecology and forestry. And, you know, when we'd go out into all these forests and look at the tree and say, well, why is this tree here today? <laughs> what are all the variables? And there were many. It had to do with water and sun and an anti-logging measure. And, you know what I mean? There were, there were all kinds of variables. I love talking to sort of like evolutionary biologists or people like that who understand how those things, in fact, impact. I'm not sure if I'm hitting your question squarely on the head, but um, so where does that come from? Um, I mean, when you think about how communities survived, right, it was because certain people did certain things. I mean, everybody contributed to, you know, whatever their piece was. Was it you brought some food and you, you grew vegetables and you... I mean, we turned that into kind of a market commodity. I, did, I don't do it, but I can buy it. But still, ultimately, if you look at how people survived back then, they absolutely worked as a community for their survival in that sense. This connects in in a really interesting way to the last two conversations I had. And both of them talked about the idea of thinking about things on a larger time scale, thinking about things on a larger space scale. And this seems to directly connect into with what we're talking about here in that, or maybe one of the ways to talk about education working well is to talk about it expanding our sense of of connectedness mm -hmm. so we make better decisions? Well, I think that's spot on to the example of the Cutter Foundation International. They did a teacher exchange with teachers from Doha and teachers in Chicago. And they went and did a whole sort of science series, science classes around looking at the water and Lake Michigan. And, and you know, so just a whole kind of learning about water and sustainability. And then those kids went back to Cutter and started doing interviews with their parents and people and said, where does our water come from and how do we, right? And so that sense of the interconnectedness between those students showed them not only like, oh, there's water issues in the United States and there's water issues in a, a desert region of the Middle East. It starts to sort of make you think about those sort of commonalities so not only might there be actually solutions in those sort of desperate seeming geographic areas, but there might be something in common. So we have that part of it. And then we have the societal, the more civic piece as well. I mean, obviously these exchanges are made between Arabic speaking and English speaking young people so that they can see themselves as collaborators and not as people who they should fear. Any amount of that interconnectedness is a huge part of what education should be about also. I've talked to everyone about sort of the present, right, and mm -hmm. these different crises, whether they think of them as environmental or economic or no crisis at all. Do you think this is a particularly critical moment in history? Yes, I think that... I think this is a real historical moment. I mean, I'm older than you, but you're older than the 14-year-olds right now who are saying, what? <laughs> you know, what are you leaving us? What is the challenge I have, right? I mean, if you talk to young kids today, they know they're going to have to like solve some of these big problems. So it's not like just, oh, is there an opportunity now to do it? It's like, it's there, it's in their face. So in some ways, I think our task, at least as the adults, are to kind of create the capacity in terms of these structures and these opportunities and let people actually solve these problems. And again, I think the technology allows a lot of it. I don't think it, 
it's the cause, but I think it enables a lot of these things to take place, mostly around communications, around the sharing of data and information. I mean, just those two things alone are enormous, right? So it's, it's sort kind of, of like, like setting a foundation of, of open communication in a way. Mm-hmm. It's not directly attacking the problems on a policy by policy level, but it's sort of setting up the framework for people to do that. Yes. I mean, and and I think that's sort of some of the best that education can do in a lot of ways. Something that I I like to sort of always go to in the conversation is talking about the conversation Mm -hmm. and about, is this a time where people are coming together and talking about the future? Well, I I feel fortunate to sort of to work in a, an area of education and innovation where that's absolutely what people are talking about. In fact, we have this event every year called the Big Ideas Fest, and we bring all different types of stakeholders in education together. So everything from the high school principal to the college student to the provost of the community college or a researcher, a policymaker, we you know, we bring them all together and we, we put them in, in rooms together and say, okay, so here's a design challenge that we're going to solve for. But at, at level one, you know, what we're doing is getting people, all stakeholders in education, to kind of have conversations and think about how they solve problems with people who they don't normally do that with. As you've been bringing all these different people together in the world of education, does that make you optimistic that we can do that on a bigger level, where, say, we're bringing educators and other people together to talk about what kind of future we jointly want as a society or as a globe? Yeah. You know, having actually given that a shot in your field. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally believe that's what needs to happen. I, I can't say that I'm really seeing that happen. Part of the dilemma in education is, especially as edu- education has become a new kind of hot, sexy topic, which it wasn't for many years. And what that means is there's a lot of investment dollars, there's venture capitalists putting money, and we're seeing a little bit about these conversations just being like, how does it make money? I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but there's a lot of condescension in the business community about education. And to me, these are two of the biggest communities that need to really get together and solve these problems. In fact, I had an interesting conversation um, last year where I was trying to get somebody to come speak at Big Ideas Fest. And this person was a big Silicon Valley, you know, entrepreneur, high tech, successful innovator. And I thought it would be great for educators to hear this person speak and tell us about that, kind of inspire us, right? So I tell him all about the the Big Ideas Fest and what it is and what I think he can offer, you know. And then he says, hold on, let me get this straight. You're saying that I'm going to come, I'm going to, you know, talk all about my years of experience as an innovator, you know, in these fields. And then they're just going to go back to their classrooms on Monday, I said, yeah, you know, they're going to go and we want them to think about how they can innovate there. And he's like, well, why would I waste my time doing that? And I just, you know, I, my heart just sank. Ugh. Luckily, I was on the phone and not face to face with him. But I think that's such the mindset. Like, we're, you know, we're the innovator. We have money. You're the educator. We'll deliver you a product that you can use. It's sort of like the same 
system all over again. I mean, already educators talk to so many other people, like educators talk to librarians and educators talk to researchers. So it's not that those conversations don't happen, but I think some of the real significant ones that have to happen around sort of how investments are made, how the future is made in education, uh, we're seeing a disconnect between the educators being in those conversations together. That's a dynamic I see at play a lot, and I try to get to in every conversation I have. But some of these things like, Here's someone who actually believes that education is not a public good. How do you, like, when your worldviews are based on fundamentally different things, like, can that conversation happen? Yep. No, that's a great question. I mean, I'd like to think it can, and I'm sure if we really try to say, all right, we don't agree on that, but what can we put in practice here? I'm sure we could find commonalities and that we could move forward. I think right now what we see is so much of a push and pull back and forth. It's one thing to sort of say, okay, how do we work together in agreement, even though we don't agree on the issue, than saying, I got it, my turn. No, it's my turn. Okay, four years later, no, it's my turn, right? And so instead, that kind of thing is very wasteful and not effective. It's not efficient. We see great programs built up and then programs just taken apart. You know, we see that all the time because of that. Are you optimistic about the future? You know, you just can't get up every day and do the kind of work we do and not be optimistic. I don't know. Maybe I was just born this way. It's funny. Um, also, at Big Ideas a few years ago, there was a speaker, a woman named Yvonne Chan. She was a principal of a school in L.A. And we just loved what she said in her talk. She was saying, when it comes to education reform, you just have to proceed until apprehended. And I just loved that quote. And, we, you know, we use it a lot. And, you know, it's just this idea that you have to be optimistic, you have to just keep trying, and you have to just keep doing it, you know. Otherwise, why would you bother being in this field? So, Lisa Petridis. Yes. We now have education in the project in a substantive way. Yes, which is excellent. Where should we start? The crisis? Yeah. For her, the crisis of now seems to be education, yeah. and you know she named a lot of other crises, but the one she's focused on, of course, being education, and right. they're, they're tied together. And she seems to think that education is pretty bad. Yes. In fact, she asks uh, how it could possibly be worse, which um, there's a sort of optimism in that sentence, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's sad. Which is funny, considering what the sentence was, but, well, I think it could get a lot worse. Which is amazing, because it is doing a a real disservice to a lot of people. And I think, you know, we didn't get into the details of this, and we're not here to talk shop and policy the whole time. But she's standing on firm ground, and I think she makes it pretty clear how and why it's not doing a great job. Totally. We didn't get into philosophy as much Mm -hmm. as some of the other conversations we've had, but we certainly, there's a lot of implicit good in here. Yes. Um, and I think the base one is that education is a social service. Like, it's a right. Right. That's huge. Mm-hmm. It's one of those old ideas and sort of ebbs and flows. Yeah. As we think so much about the tension between the individual and the collective, that pushes us towards a collective idea. But I think this is what's so cool about Lisa is that She's also really interested in tailoring education through technology, which pushes you towards an individual idea. So it's not mass-produced, but it is a mass-right, which I think is a really cool balance to have. Totally. 
I hadn't thought about it quite in those terms, but you're right. I like that. It's, it's, yeah. So it's a mass right. She would like to see more people actually able to take advantage of it, supported in ways that they can make it through school. And what is school good for? There's sort of a, an old idea of the liberal arts education, which just learning for learning's sakes makes you a better, more well-rounded person. And I certainly think there's some of that to what she's saying. But there was also a sort of vocational tinge to what she was saying education is good for as well. There was very much, I thought, an idea that education helps you survive in the modern world. Mm-hmm. It helps you fit into society. It helps you not sink below the water. It helps you find that place in the economy. Right. And there's a democratic good in here, right? Informed electorate. Right. That's something we talk about a lot as a society. We didn't get into it much in this interview, but it's certainly an implicit good, mm -hmm. you know. And why have an informed electorate? Well, they make better choices. Maybe an informed electorate is the kind of electorate that can come together and have the conversation. I mean, it seemed like for her, critical thought is a really big part of this. Yes. You know, if we were to make an odd connection, I think this is something that Max Moore would have really liked. The idea of sort of the individual fulfillment of education, the encouragement of critical thought, mm -hmm. of a really disciplined, inquisitive populace who are finding self-fulfillment in a lot of different ways through education. I don't know if he would have agreed about sort of the, the right to education necessarily, but I think he would have really liked this approach to how it's done. I agree. Um, and that one of her goals is actually encouraging people to think about better decision-making. Thinking about Max Moore and sort of the tension between the individual and the collective that we find somewhat in Lisa's work and thinking on education as well is kind of an interesting segue to our next conversation with Gabriel Stempinski. He's a self-proclaimed evangelist of the sharing economy. These are sort of largely tech services that allow people to sell skills, rent their personal equipment and spaces, and it's kind of creating a whole micro-economy here in San Francisco, which has really interesting ramifications for what can the individual do economically. And when you fragment an economy into a bunch of individuals sort of competing and bidding for jobs, what ramifications does that have on the collective good? So I'm curious to see how that will link up. Yeah, sounds good. I would just like to throw out, uh, we're finally starting to get some conversation on the website, and I would love to see more of that happening. So if you're listening, go to the website, findtheconversation.com, sign up for an account, and uh, you know, let us know what you think. Let us know how you think we're doing. Let us know what you thought of Lisa. Let us know what you want us to ask future interviews. Yeah, and any of the other interviews... They're all there waiting to be commented upon. And we will jump in when we can, when we're not running around and interviewing people and editing audio. And I mean, I think for both of us, this is really one of the most exciting parts of the project. And we're looking forward to it actually coming to life now that we've started to get enough interviews mm -hmm. and maybe enough listeners to kind of spark a conversation. Yeah. And it'll be really fun when we start getting to carry some of those questions in. Right, exactly. To the next conversations and bring all of you into this project with us. Cool. We ask everyone if they're optimistic. I'm optimistic about that. And I guess you have to be. Proceed yeah. optimistically until, until apprehended. apprehended. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we'll try. So we'll be back soon. Yes. Until then. 
That was Lisa Petridis, recorded May 31, 2012, at the headquarters of ISCME, the Institute for the Study of Knowledge Management and Education, in Half Moon Bay, California. This is The Conversation. You can find us on Twitter at at Angus Anderson and on the web at findtheconversation.com. So, thanks for listening. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Micah Saul. <laughs>